to start off by just asking moms a question. Mom, what does it mean to be a mom? Seems like a simple question. I bet that many of you, though, have not really considered the question. You just kind of do it. And many of you who are not mothers, but like myself, if you haven't noticed, I'm not a mom, uh, you maybe never thought about it either. You just kind of expect mom to do certain things. And if she doesn't do them, you're disappointed. If she does them, you think she's awesome, as the video said, and you think she's great. But what does it really mean to be a mom? Have you thought about that? There are people who have thought about that. And you can go onto a website, salary.com, not celery, salary.com, and they've done some research to figure out what it really means to be a mom. And they surveyed moms, 40,000 in fact, they surveyed over 40,000 moms and asked them what they do, how they spend their time. And they determined that the average mom works 92 hours a week at motherhood. And some of the things that she does, they classify it under different job titles. And I'll tell you what they are in order of the time spent. Housekeeper, daycare center teacher, cook, computer operator, laundry machine operator. Did not know there was such a thing. Janitor, facilities manager, van driver, chief executive officer, and psychologist. That's probably not a newsflash for many of you. Mom, you do a lot of different jobs. What they did is they took those and they calculated how many hours that you spend on each one. And then because of their resources at salary.com, they took the median incomes for all of those different jobs, calculated them to the hours that you spent, and came up with an average salary for a mom on a yearly basis. <laughs> Dads are all cringing. <laughs> I got her flowers. You know, what a... Moms, they said, should make about $138,095 a year. <laughs> no amens. Okay. Uh, the uh, salary we know, the jobs we know, but that still doesn't answer the question, what does it mean to be a mom? And I can tell you stories about what it means to be a mom, not firsthand experience of that, but I was thinking about this week, my, my wife, Shanna, she, we've got four kids at our house, six and under, and she is a, a wonderful mother to them, but it can be crazy. And just this past week on Monday, we're having one of those mornings, you know what I'm talking about, like those mornings where it's just not going well, and there's things that are happening, and one's hurt, and something else happens, and they're not listening, and all that type of stuff. Monday's kind of like that sometimes. Kids wake up in a funk, apparently, too. And it was the last day of school for our kids. And my wife had made a cake. <laughs> She's that mom. Remember the mom? They'd bring the cake to school and how great that was going to be. And she put it in the back of the van. And the kids were in the van. She had to run back in the house. She comes out, and there's a footprint in the middle of the cake. <laughs> One of those days. A couple hours later, she's at the school. She's out in the hallway, and she hears a teacher say something to one of our children, something that you wouldn't want said to your offspring. She directs her mouth towards one of our children, whose name will remain nameless for this illustration, and the teacher says to our child, child's name, please stop sucking on your feet. <laughs> and I said to my wife later, well, yeah, she probably had cake between her toes. Like, that's why she's sucking on her feet. My wife told me, no, I talked to her about it, and she said the reason she was sucking on her feet is because her feet were itching. <laughs> Athlete's mouth, right? <laughs> Moms, you perhaps not had that experience, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we could talk about today the different jobs that you do, and we could talk about the craziness that it is, but we want to get past that today. Past job descriptions, past the amount of money that you could get paid, past even some of the crazy stuff that happens. Let's get to the heart and the essence. What does it mean to be a mom? And that's what we're going to talk about today, the meaning of motherhood. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. I invite you to turn with me. We'll put verses up on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible. But 1 Samuel 
chapter 1. And just to give you an idea of what's happening there, 1 Samuel comes right after the book of Ruth. However, the context for 1 Samuel is actually the book of Judges. Many people say that Samuel was the last judge in the Bible. If you don't know what a judge is, it wasn't somebody who sat on a throne and made decisions about what was happening in the nation, but a judge was someone that God especially anointed to lead the nation. This was before they had a king. This is before they really had a lot of structure for leading Israel. And God will put a special anointing, sometimes on a man, sometimes on a woman, to lead in a unique way, depending on what was happening in that time. And what the book of Judges tells us about this time period is it was much like our own. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so who are you to tell me what's right for me? And who am I to tell you? And so everybody just did what was right. And the times were very evil because that's naturally what we choose. We're naturally selfish and we naturally choose sin. And that's what people were doing. And that's the macro picture of the nation of Israel at this time. And what God does is he zooms into one family specifically one woman. Her name is Hannah. And we read about her in 1 Samuel chapter 1. In verse 1, what we see is that she's got a husband named Elkanah. And if you read that verse, you'll see some of his ancestry and where he lives. But join me in verse 2. Elkanah, this man, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. He's setting up the book here. Whenever they came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because, the Lord, because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6. And because the Lord had closed her womb, in case you missed it, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Sounds like depression. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And once, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. So moms, some of you think about the, the great joy that there is in motherhood, and there is great joy. Can you think about the, when you found out you were pregnant? Do you remember that? That was great joy. And think about when you found out if it was a boy or a girl. How exciting is that? And think about the baby showers and the birth of your child. And you think about the birthdays and the celebrations and the graduations and sending them out and all that stuff. It's exciting stuff. And time to rejoice. But for many, those exact same moments are times of great misery, are incredibly difficult. For various reasons, some like Hannah, because they long to have those moments with their own child and their womb has been closed. For others, for different reasons. But for many of us, male and female, motherhood means misery. For many people, motherhood means misery. And for many of the people that motherhood means misery to, they'll never hear the words I'm going to share today. 
they won't hear me say anything that I'll say this morning because it's too painful for them to even be here or to log on or to do whatever they would do to hear this message because it's so difficult for some because like Hannah, they're barren. They're not able to have children. And then they're going to see someone else celebrated for the very thing that they long to have. And so for them, motherhood means misery. For others, it's a reminder of maybe a child you put up for adoption and you don't know where they're at and you wonder where they're at and you wonder how things are going. Or maybe it's a reminder of a, a miscarriage and for motherhood in that situation means misery. For others, it's a reminder of an abortion. It means misery. For some, it's people that are mothers and they longed for it. Maybe they longed for it like Hannah, but now they have it and they feel trapped and they don't feel like they're doing a good job and it's not going well. And so for them, motherhood means misery. And for others, people will pat you on the back and they'll give you a present today and they'll say happy Mother's Day to you, but inside you think of the mistakes you made and you feel like a failure. But on the outside, you're happy about it. And so for you, motherhood means misery. And for other people that are maybe aren't moms, or never wanted to be a mom, maybe genetically you never were going to become a mom, but you're estranged from mom or there's tension in the relationship, or she didn't do what you expected, and you're her, and you attribute that. Maybe she's overly bonded to you. Maybe you're disconnected from her for various reasons. Motherhood means misery to you. For many, motherhood means misery. And for Hannah, it meant misery. And you see how difficult her situation is. Just try and imagine being Hannah. The first description we have of her is in verse 2. Talking about Elkanah, he had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Okay, first of all, this guy's got two wives. Now, just let me pause and say for a second, husbands, if you even have for a millisecond a thought that that might be a good idea, let me remind you, you can't handle the wife you have, <laughs> okay? If you've ever said to your wife before, honey, how are you doing? She said, fine, and you believed her. Let me tell you, you can't handle the wife you have, okay? And some people will use a passage of scripture like this where you see that there's someone that has multiple wives and they'll say, see, God's okay with polygamy and that can happen. No, no, no. Murder's in the Bible too. It doesn't mean that God's okay with it. See, God, the way he's the one who instituted, designed marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, he says that it would be one man and one woman. That's the institution of marriage. And Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father. He will cleave to his wife. The two will become one. Male and female, two will become one. Now, if you ever have the opportunity to vote in the future about whether marriage can be between three people or groups of people or anything like that. It's one man, one woman. That was God's plan. However, remember that they lived in a time, the book of Judges tells us, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the context here. And so it seemed right for some reason, maybe to Hannah, definitely to Elkanah, that he take another wife. Now, if you study polygamy, what you'll find out is in Old Testament times, there were about four reasons, four main reasons why people would take multiple wives. The main one, the primary one, was because the first woman that you married was not able to have children. And your dreams as a man in that time hinged upon the fact that you would have a son, that he someday would take care of the estate. He was your retirement plan, that he would carry on the, the name. He was a legacy plan for you. There was pride in that, having a son. And so she's not able to have children. And the fact that she's listed first in this verse, in verse 2, indicates that Hannah is probably his first wife. So he married Hannah. She wasn't able to have children. Call the lack of faith. Call it doing it right in his own eyes. Call it whatever you want to call it. But he went out and he got another one. And we see from the text that she's able to have all her sons and daughters, lots of children. 
And she's a rival with Hannah. Can you imagine what this felt like? Maybe it was her idea. But the pain that's still there, we saw what happened with Abraham and Sarah. When Sarah, she's unable to have children, she says, go get this other woman. She's my maidservant. You have a child with her. And then there's this rivalry. There's this anger there. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that's what's going to happen, okay? Whether you live in Utah or you live in Raleigh, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> and we can look at it and think, oh, it's just people out in Utah or just people in the Bible. Let me tell you something. When people do what's right in their own eyes, and the ends justifies the means, there's nothing that should be a surprise. You should see, what, just watch the news. A couple months ago, there was a story like this in the news where there was a couple, maybe you saw this, they were unable to have children. And so what they did is the husband made up a fake identity, got on a dating website, called himself Ed DuPont. I don't know if you've ever seen this. You can look it up online if you want to. Said he was a billionaire. Ends up meeting this young lady. They date for 18 months. So it wasn't like a weekend thing. They date for 18 months. He talks to her about marriage and all that stuff. He gets her pregnant. And while she's pregnant, he has her sign some papers. She doesn't realize what she's signing. He has her sign some papers to sign over the right to the children to him. And then what ends up happening is he takes the child away one time, then calls her up and says, I'm already married. We're adopting this child. You actually signed your rights away. There's a longing for children in many of our bones. This couple would do what was right in their own eyes. To be able to have that, this couple here, Elkanah and Hannah, they would add another woman to the mix, and it would cause more problems. Try and imagine what it was like to be Hannah, the wife who is not able to have children, and that's why there's a second one. There's a rivalry. Can you imagine what she says? You couldn't meet his needs. That's why I'm here. Look at all the children that God has blessed me with. She's not a godly woman. And people thought, and rightly so, the Bible says, the children are a blessing from the Lord. And then they take the converse of that and then say, because children are a blessing from the Lord, if you can't have them, you must be cursed by God. And you look at the passage, it says some tough verses here, verse 5, verse 6, and the Lord closed her womb. And verse 6, in case you didn't notice, and because the Lord closed her womb, God did not allow her to have children, but it wasn't a curse. He had a different plan. But can you imagine in the midst of that, the misery of that? Verse 10 says there was a bitterness of soul for Hannah. And the scene that we see here, we don't pay much attention to, but they're traveling to a feast. It was a time of celebration for God's provisions. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, a time where you remembered how God provided for the people in the wilderness, but then also how you would celebrate what he had provided and the crops for that year. And so you're going to a worship service with your husband and his other wife and her kids. And can you imagine traveling like that anyways? It's a two-day journey. It's only 15 miles, but somehow it takes them two days. Which, If you have children, you might understand how that happens. Uh, we've done, we've, I've never done a two-day journey with our kids. I did a road trip recently. We went to Florida. It was a ten-and-a-half-hour drive. My kids start asking me about five minutes into that drive, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I say things like, don't ask until you see Pedro's. You know, don't, don't ask again. It's like the pride of South Carolina, right? South Carolinians? Is it pride? Yeah, at any rate, you're mad at me now. Uh, Pedro's there. Not even open, but this huge hat. We, it wears you out traveling with kids. Imagine how Hannah felt on this road trip that took two days with this other woman who's mocking her to the point of tears and her kids, and they're going to celebrate God's provision. Do you think she thought to herself, yeah, God's provision, but you haven't provided for me. Great for, why don't we, we might as well take Penina to a Mother's Day service and let's celebrate her while she mocks me. That's essentially where she's at. And what happens is that she gets up and she leaves the meal and she goes out and she begins to cry out to the Lord and it says in bitterness of soul and she cries out to him and says, look upon me and my misery. Because for her, motherhood meant misery. 
And what do you do in your times of misery? Well, we all have them. And some of you, your times of misery are, are, are moments like today because you so long, like Hannah, to have a child. And God, like verse 5 and verse 6 say, has closed your womb. He's got a different plan for you. So what do you do? How do you respond to God? In our, in our series, how do you relate to God? Because generally speaking, there are two options. One is anger and bitterness of soul and confusion. It's when you go to God and you say, why me? And, and how come you didn't? And you've got a plan and he's not fulfilling your plan. And so you're upset with him and you're thinking, how can I worship a God who? And that is natural. And it happens for various reasons. Some people, you see situations, you don't think Hannah thought to yourself, you don't want him to be married to two women. If you would just give me a child, this wouldn't have happened. Some of you know what that's like. You go through a divorce and you don't want a divorce and the other person's leaving. You say, if you would just, you don't like divorce, so you just change their heart. And you question God in that. Or an abuse and you wonder, where, where was God in those moments? Or when betrayal or someone ruins your reputation or you lose a job or various things happen. How come Christians starve to death? Why, why does that happen? Where are you, God? In the pain, and you, and you wonder, does he have any power in the pain? And why would he let you go through that? And that is natural. And we see it with Hannah and the bitterness of soul. But if you stay there too long, let me tell you what that will do. It will foster bitterness and anger in your heart and will push you away from God. And there's another response. The response we see of Hannah in this passage of Scripture and it starts with what's natural, with the anger and the bitterness and the things that would be there. And she wouldn't eat. It looks like depression in the passage. Later, later she calls it in this passage, anguish and grief. She's mourning the child she's never had. But then you also see a trust and dependence. Look at verse 11 in the prayer that she prays. And the NIV doesn't point it out quite as much because the way that we're taught English is that we're supposed to not repeat the same word over and over again in a sentence. It becomes redundant. Uh, the Hebrews didn't do that. And the English doesn't translate. If you have an American Standard or English Standard Version or King James, it'll say it a little different than the NIV. The NIV says here this, And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant and give your servant, it should say here, give your servant a son and then I'll give him back to you. And what you see here from Hannah is a spirit of submission and trust and dependence in those moments of confusion, in that moment of misery, she goes for greater trust and dependence as she calls herself, I'm your servant. Not God, you better answer to me, but I trust you. That I am a daughter of yours, and I serve you, and I trust that your plan is best. And there are some things that we just don't learn apart from pain. And we can get mad at God and think that he's not doing it right, and we've got to remember what's our perspective in this relationship. We're like kids who think it would be good to eat candy for every meal. And we've got a father who knows better. And why is it that he's allowing us to go through difficult circumstances? Whether it's cancer, whether it's betrayal, whether it's divorce, whether it's barrenness, whatever it is, why is it? Is it so that we'll become confused and angry and flee from him? Or is it so that we'll realize that we can't handle this on our own and we need him? And we'll depend upon him and we'll trust him. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Philippians that something special happens in suffering where we get to know Jesus. Remember, he was the man of sorrows. We get to know Jesus better. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship sharing in his sufferings. And get this statement, becoming like him in his death. What does it look like to become like Jesus in his death? Do you remember these words? 
not my will, Father, but yours be done. Do we trust that he actually has a good plan for us? Romans 8, 28. He works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do we trust that there's nothing that can separate us from him? Not rape, not murder, not abortion, not addiction, not cancer, not tragedy, not barrenness, none of that stuff. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Do we trust that he actually has a plan that's for his glory and our good, even if it's not our plan? What do you do in your misery? Do you realize the scriptures teach that it's in our very weakness and our helplessness that he's made known? The apostle Paul cries out to God to fix something three times. God tells him no. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. He says that God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. I am enough. Not having a child, not me fixing your problem, not me changing your circumstances. I want to draw you to me. I am enough. My grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect. It's made known. I am seen through your weaknesses. And so he allows these weaknesses to remain. And think about those times of weakness, those times of misery, those times of affliction. That's the general word there that's in this passage of Scripture. And it's applied to many things throughout the Scriptures. The affliction that you've experienced. My wife and I, we think of our first child, obviously Mother's Day. And when we were pregnant for her, we found out we were pregnant for her, we thought she was going to be incredibly sick. And that drove us to God. And how God desires to use that to develop greater trust and greater dependence. And for many, motherhood means misery. And in that misery, he desires for you to trust him more and walk by faith with him. If you walk by faith with him as a mom, you will be misunderstood, though. Because for many, motherhood means misunderstanding. Not only does motherhood mean misery, but motherhood for many means misunderstanding. And moms, this should be easy for you to grasp. How many times are you misunderstood <laughs> in a weekly basis? If you have little kids, how many times do you say to your little kids something and they hear something totally different? It's like something happens between the time those words leave your mouth, it gets translated and it hits their ears. And you'll say something like, uh, you know, don't jump on the couch. And they'll say, okay, and they start jumping on their sister. You know, it's like it, they heard one thing, but they started doing something else. You know, don't play with scissors. And all of a sudden, they've given the dog a haircut, like at our house. And so it's like somehow these words, just, they're not translating. You know, get your hands out of your mouth, and they stick them in their nose. It, what, the, what in the world happens at that moment? One of the ones that happens at our house is this. We said to our kids oftentimes, don't talk while adults are talking. And sometimes they listen to that, but somehow I think it gets translated into their ears. Hold the most inappropriate things you have to say until we're talking to someone we barely know, preferably at church. <laughs> and that's what happens with our offspring that suck on their feet. And so somehow, somehow, mom gets totally misunderstood in this process. And moms, you know what it's like to be misunderstood. You see that in the life of Hannah. Think about what it was like for Hannah. She gets asked by her husband in verse 8. She's, she's misunderstood twice in this passage, and I will mention for my own detriment. Both times it's by men. One time it's by her husband. The next time it's by a spiritual leader. My own detriment, right? Verse 8. Her husband said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Dude, get a clue. Seriously? You married another woman because she couldn't have children. It's why she cries all the time. Are you serious? Why are you weeping? Do you ever ask questions? Do you think, why did that come out of my mouth? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? And here's one, men, <laughs> typical man statement. Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Somebody smack Elkanah in this passage. <laughs> Have you ever seen a man try to address a problem? Because we want to fix stuff, right? And you don't even understand the problem. That's what this guy's doing here. 
I think that he, the way he's portrayed, it says that he loves his wife. I think that he loves his wife. He desires to do what's best. He wants to provide for her. I, I believe that he's well-intended here. He just doesn't get it. And dads, husbands, let me tell you something. It's not a competition between how much she loves you and how much she loves the kids. It's just different. It's not about more or less. It's different. And Elkanah's saying, can I not fulfill your needs here? And the answer is no, you can't. And you know what the reality is? Neither can a kid. Because what she's calling for is her calling that God has on her life. And only God can fulfill that. She's misunderstood here, though. And then she's misunderstood again later. After that moment, we already read verses 9 through 11. She gets up, she goes, and she pours her heart out. Remember when she went in in verse 9, Eli, the priest, was sitting at the door. And look at what happens in verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And it was typical in Israel at that time that when you prayed, you prayed out loud. It wasn't normal like it is for many of us. Maybe you prayed during the song while we were singing. Maybe some of you will even pray in your seat as I'm preaching. But it wasn't normal then. And so if you saw somebody, their lips are moving, no words are coming out, and they're, they're pouring out their soul, you'd wonder what's going on. And Eli, he doesn't understand. He thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? You're at the temple, woman. You know, get, get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord. You don't understand, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And here you see a woman. For her, motherhood meant misery and motherhood meant misunderstanding. And if you go through the scriptures, you'll see oftentimes moms being misunderstood. The epitome of all the examples being the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, Mary, who's incredibly misunderstood even today. Some people, they want to worship her. She was a human. God had a special plan for her. She shouldn't be worshipped. Others of us, because of that, we want to ignore her as if she doesn't really exist and we miss out to our own detriment. She's misunderstood. And of course she is. In her own day, they thought she was an adulteress. Then don't you think that some people probably thought she was crazy, the stuff that she said? If anybody knew misunderstanding, it was Mary, right? Many of you moms, you know what it is to feel misunderstood. And let me just say this disclaimer. You can be misunderstood for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's because you don't make sense. Sometimes it's because someone's disagreeing with you and you think they just don't understand. No, they disagree with you and you might be wrong. And this is true not just for moms, but for all of us. But what you see through the scriptures is when you step out by faith, when you walk by faith, you will be misunderstood. And to actually fulfill the call of motherhood requires that you step out by faith. It's going to require a greater trust and dependency. It's going to require that you go through some difficult times. It's going to require you go to the Lord because the only way that it can happen is through the Spirit's enabling. And you think about people who had those characteristics in their life throughout the Scripture, people like Noah. You think that guy was misunderstood? Think about Moses. He leaves a life of luxury to go lead a group of slaves. Read Hebrews chapter 11, and you'll see example after example of people that were misunderstood. It's the chapter of faith. When people walk out by faith, they're misunderstood. The greatest example of anyone being misunderstood is Jesus Christ himself, who comes to this earth. Why would anyone do that? To leave there and come here. And then he's misunderstood by both common folk and religious leaders, by political leaders, by wealthy, by poor. He comes to preach good news, and they kill him. Talk about misunderstanding. But he did it as he did the Father's will, so that he could 
redeem you and redeem me. He was a man of sorrows who understood misunderstanding. Moms, you know what it is to be miserable and you know what it is to be misunderstood if you're walking by faith. Because what he's calling you to do, what motherhood really is, is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ through your life. And people will not understand that. When you intentionally lay your life down for the sake of another, the world doesn't understand that. That's why when some of you, you go to the Target or you go to Harris Teeter or you go to different stores, and if you have multiple children, people will look at you like, don't you know how that happens? You can stop that. What is this, like a religious thing? Like, what's happening here? And you have people maybe say dumb things to you, at least give you dumb looks. It's because they don't understand that someone would actually intentionally lay their life down for the sake of someone else. Someone would actually intentionally look out for someone else's interests as opposed to their own. And because of the time that we live in, we've got an incredibly skewed view of children. And we might even say statements like children are a blessing from the Lord, but our view is that they're a blessing to us to somehow fulfill a need in our lives, and we treat them almost like they're an accessory in our lives. And that's not true. Children will be an incredible inconvenience. They're very messy, and they will require you to be selfless. That's what children are like. I heard a woman uh, talking about this. I actually read an interview that she did. And her name, she's a professor of ethics at Duke Divinity School, associate professor of ethics. Her name is Ann Laura Hall. And she was doing this interview, and she was talking about, she does a lot of stuff with, with children and all that, and she was talking about how times have changed and how we view children. And she was talking about how there was a time period where children were viewed much more realistic. And she used a, a contrast, an analogy of different paintings that are done now, nowadays, or pictures. And uh, some pictures were by Norman Rockwell. used to do the pictures for the Saturday Evening Post, and there are some famous ones if you just type in Google Norman Rockwell, and they'll show pictures probably like a dog pulling kids' pants off, a bunch of kids playing together, fishing, doing different stuff. Kids are messy, and they're together. And then she contrasted that with Ann Getty's pictures. Some of you are familiar with those, and they're adorable. Uh, Pictures of kids dressed up like a pumpkin or a flower, and they never have food on their face, and they're really cute. And listen to what she said about them. She says, and I quote, Those icons of childhood are indicative of a dominant culture in America that sees children as a way to accessorize and fulfill one's life rather than as interruptions into our hopes, dreams, and goals. And I will add, and that is why we oftentimes make children idols in our lives, where they become central. They're supposed to fulfill needs and hopes, and they rule. They get to drive. They decide what happens in our lives. And they're in a role that only God's supposed to be in, and it will never work. And that is why God gives us children as an opportunity to live out the gospel. And moms, that's what motherhood is. It's an opportunity to be selfless, to demonstrate Christ-like love, someone who came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life for the sake of others. That is why he, he comes as one that would lay his life down as a sacrifice, and that's why motherhood means sacrifice. That's the essence of all of it. It means misery. It means misunderstanding. But the essence of motherhood means sacrifice. And Hannah gives a very tangible demonstration of that in this passage. And we'll skip a few verses for the sake of time, but what happens is God answers her prayer. And she conceives, she has a son. In verse 20, look at it. For Samuel chapter 1. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. She remembers her prayer. And when the man Elkanah went up with his family and all of his family to offer sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. 
stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. Don't forget. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And time frame wise, what that would mean in this culture is probably about three years old. Which seems odd, but before we put our American culture on top of that, let's just remember they live in a totally different culture. And in that place, they wouldn't have running water in their house, which the majority of people who hear these words will have running water. They probably didn't have a healthy source of water in their entire village community. And what people would do is they would treat the water with alcohol in order to be able to drink it safely themselves. And many parents, they didn't want their children to drink that alcohol water. And so what they would do is they would continue to nurse the child until they were about three years old. Now, get in your mind a picture of a three-year-old. Those of you who have kids that are young, and that'll be easy. And those of you who might have to remember from a time, or some of you maybe worked in the nursery or different places. By the time a child's three, they can talk. They can walk. They can say certain things. And you start to get an idea of their personality. You start to know whether they're shy, or whether they're outgoing, whether they're mischievous, whether they're kind, whether they're gentle, whether they're you know, artistic or athletic. You start to get an idea, and you start to see things in them that remind you of you. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not good. <laughs> they remind you of your spouse. You really get to know a child by the time they're three. And look at what happens next. After he was weaned, three years old, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a whole bunch of stuff for sacrifice. And then you jump down to verse 28. She reminds Eli who she is because it was three years ago that he had this encounter with her. And then she sa- it says, so now I give him to the Lord. Could you imagine that, given your three-year-old, that you so longed for, that you cry out, that you were bitterness of soul over? There was anguish and there was grief and there was misery and you longed for motherhood so desperately. And then she gives her three-year-old to the Lord. For his whole life, he'll be given over to the Lord. It wasn't symbolically, and he, little boy, worshipped the Lord there. He lived there his whole life at the tabernacle from the time he was three on. Can you imagine what that was like for that mom? How could she do that? It's because her longing wasn't that she could be called mom or to have a child, and the child wasn't an idol, but her identity was actually wrapped up in who she served, which was her king. And you go back to verse 11, and you see that. That even when she was crying out, not, I want to be a mom. Please look upon your servant. Please listen to your servant. I am your servant. She was a daughter of the king before she was anything else. She was God's servant. So she wanted to live out according to God's plan. Your will above my will. My moms, are you there? Are you the place where the most important thing about you is a role that you function in society? Or do you realize what it is to be a daughter of the king, to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart by God for a plan to demonstrate Jesus Christ to this world? He may have given you the opportunity to do it through motherhood, and he may have a different plan for you, but that is his plan for you. And moms, those of you who yet to place your faith in Jesus, let me tell you something. The most important message that God wants to speak to you today is this, that he loves you. And you can know him, the one who gave his child, so he could know you. He wants a relationship with you, but the only way that can become a reality is if you know his son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. And the way you know him as your Savior is you've got to admit you need one. You need a Savior because of your sin. We all sin, each one of us, me and every other person that's here. But you've got to acknowledge that that sin is a problem that comes between you and God. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He loved the world so much that he gave his son, Jesus Christ. 
that while the wages of sin was death, separation from him, that the gift of God, the gift he wants to give you this Mother's Day, is a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And you can have that when you call upon Jesus to be your Savior. And moms, and husbands, and singles, and children, and grandparents, and retired, whoever you are, that's what God wants for you today, above anything else. And those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what he desires for you is to put Jesus on display through your lives. And for moms specifically, he's given you a role that so closely parallels the unique love of a Savior. It's amazing. The man of sorrows who knew misunderstanding and knew sacrifice. He came not to be served, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You have an opportunity to do that very thing every time you unload the dishwasher, every time you do laundry. Every time you take a trip in the van, every time you function as that psychologist, every time you fulfill those tasks that you do in life, you're given an opportunity to choose self-denial and service. The very thing that we're all commanded to as believers. In Philippians chapter 2, it says this, that we shouldn't think more about our own interests, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We should think about others, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. It goes on, each of you should look not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others and your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, the very picture, a portrayal of your Savior, Jesus Christ. But moms, it requires incredible humility, especially in those times when you feel trapped and you feel like, I don't even want to be here, and this is what I'm supposed to do, and I could do something more important. I remind you of the attitude of Christ Jesus. You continue on in that passage. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant. He came in and made in human likeness. Taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So moms, if you wonder what it means to be a mom, in essence, what it is to be a mom is sacrifice, and it's a picture of your Savior, a portrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what a magnificent and high calling God's given you. And for those of you who do that by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, let me just say thank you. And for those of you who hear that and you feel like a failure, let me remind you, God's mercies are new every day, and He washes over you. His forgiveness is available. And for those of you who need to know His Son as your Savior, that gift is offered to you today. You just have to receive it. Let's pray. Father God, we come into Your presence, grateful for Your grace, grateful for Your plan that is higher than our plan. Grateful for a plan that will enable each one of us, regardless of our sphere of influence, where we live, where we move, where we have our being, that you will give us opportunities to portray your son, Jesus Christ, as we come into counter, into contact with other people. And God, I pray for those who need to begin a relationship with your son, Jesus, today. I pray that they would do that even right now. If you hear these words on the internet, if you're listening and you're here in Theater 9 or 14, you can call upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior right now. And the way that you do that is you have to acknowledge your sin. You know that it's there. God knows that it's there, but you've got to come to an acknowledgement point where you realize that that's the thing that's hindering you from having a relationship with God, and you confess that sin to Him, and then you realize that Jesus Christ is the only way that that sin can be forgiven. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's no other name on earth given to us as human beings by which men shall be saved, which women shall be saved, other than the name of God.